When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. So I am uh, thrilled to have Dr. Mary Chapman today here, who is a professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, Thank you, Mary, for joining me today from Vancouver. Thank you for having me. And and, um, Mary, you are um, a professor of uh, English and American literature. You're the academic director of the Public Humanities um, Center or the hub at the University of British Columbia. And why you're our guest today, and I'm really thrilled to have you, is because you're one of the people who are experts on the writings of the Eaton sisters, of Edith Eaton and her sister. And the book that first um, got me acquainted with your work is Becoming Sui Sin Far, Early Fiction, Journalism, and Travel Writing by Edith Maud Eaton. Could you start us out to tell our listeners to talk a little bit about the beginning of this writer who you and I both think is really significant, but is maybe not as well known to some listeners yet. Sure. Um, I first stumbled on Sui Sinfar, as she is known by because of her Chinese pseudonym. Um, in grad school, when many of us as American literature teachers were looking for diverse content for our courses and Asian American literature was a very new field in the late 80s, early 90s. But Sui Sinfar, birth name Edith Eaton, had published one book of short stories in 1912 called Mrs. Spring Fragrance. And it was sympathetic to diasporic Chinese during a period of intense racism towards Asian immigrants. So her stories were short, they were teachable, students really connected well with them. Her, her memoirs or her sort of autobiographical journalism, which was also collected in a sort of edited collection, was also really accessible. So that's kind of where I got started being interested in her. But my research took a really strange turn. One night when I was Googling her name, I knew she had written about suffrage and I was writing a book about suffrage. And I, you know how the web is, things appear and then, you know, months later, the stuff that you found is gone. So who knows where it went. But on that particular evening when I searched her name, a story came up that had nothing to do with diasporic Chinese. It had, I had never seen it before. It had never been mentioned. It was strange. It was sort of about Alaska, sort of about the Philippines, about indigenous children. And so I suddenly thought, you know what? This writer wrote way more than we know about that one collection just completely underestimates how profound an an involvement she had in the print culture of her day. So that sent me down uh, the rabbit hole. So your research has really uncovered 
a far greater range of writing after this collection, Mrs. Frank Fragrance, which just for our listeners, I think an important moment is 1974 when there's an anthology of Asian American writers with uh, Frank Chin and people like that called IE. And Sui Sin Far is identified there as a bit of the kind of foremother and ancestor of some parts of contemporary Asian American writing. So this is 74. And as you said, when people are really actively, and a lot of people who you um, credit in your book have really done enormous amounts of work to basically, it's hard to say, not even recover, but to actually put these people on a map from which they've been deliberately excluded from high school curricula. So, but you, but what I found so interesting, and then you say, this is not enough. She is, let's say, the, the foremother, she kind of this ancestral figure for Asian American, Chinese American, Chinese Canadian writing, but she's much broader than that. That's right. She is so rich, uh, an author to explore. She's Chinese Canadian. She's raised in Montreal, but she had a long career in the US, so we can consider her Chinese American as well. Because she's mixed race, because her father was British, um, she, when she's raised in Montreal, she really is raised in a kind of Victorian Canadian society. She doesn't learn Chinese. She, there aren't many Chinese immigrants living in Montreal. So we could say that part of the process of her career is becoming Chinese, uh, becoming Chinese American or North American, you could say. So uh, I see her as a really um, fascinating figure because of the contributions she makes to a number of genres, whether we look at fiction, poetry, journalism, even political advocacy. You know, she's one of the first people to speak out against the head tax from the perspective of someone or the exclusion era from the perspective of someone of Chinese ancestry. Can you say something about this briefly, the legal context? So you, in, in, in the US, you have 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the head taxes in Canada. What do these taxes and these laws mean for, for Chinese people in both countries? Well, I think uh, the North America welcomed Chinese immigrants um, after the Civil War, during the period of transcontinental railroad expansion, and Chinese were uh, welcomed as workers. But once the transcontinental railroads were completed, um, racist, largely working class uh, people, especially in Western, the Western states, the Western provinces, opposed the the presence of a people they considered outsiders, um, un unassimilable immigrants. And so uh, there were moves, a number of gestures, you know, everything from riots, um, burning people's homes, driving out businesses, that kind of thing, to um, what Canada came up with was a head tax. Everyone from China who came to Canada had to pay a sort of entrance fee. And it was a staggeringly expensive entrance fee. It began, I think, about $50 and it went up to $500. But in 19th century currency terms, this might represent a significant part of somebody's annual earnings or more. So very few people paying that head tax could afford to sponsor additional members of their families. So the effect of that was you limited the immigration to Canada to men, many of whom actually would return to China because their families were there or their wives were there. So, so it really limited the, um, the settlement of Chinese families in Canada. And then in the 1920s, the Canadian government um, 
imposed an exclusion period similar to what the US had done. So as you said, the US imposed this exclusion beginning in 1882, they kept renewing it. So really Chinese American families didn't get a chance to form in, in North America until midway through the 20th century. And Sui Sin Far, if you can take us to her, so she's in Montreal growing up, an English father, Chinese mother, and if you can say something about the parents, and then how does a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl start to actually have a voice on behalf of a community, as you said, that she had to actually become? I mean, I'm thinking of a, it's a teenage girl who is deciding, um, who's probably well-educated and has some little bit of talent for writing at this moment, she's actually committing. I think that's why she becomes such an important figure for so many people afterwards. Absolutely. Well, to answer your first question about the parents, these parents are amazing. They're, they're quite a distraction for me because <laughs> much as I love Edith Eaton, Suri Sidfar, I feel drawn to the parents' lives. And you're writing I'm a book, right? You're writing this book, Intimate, right. Intimate Empire, about the whole Eaton family, right? Because that's right. You have a sister who's an important writer. So. Yes, you're, you're right. I'm writing a book about the family. It's kind of a micro history because it's trying to situate this transnational biracial family in the broader context of 19th century social, cultural, and political contexts. So, so her parents are fascinating. Her father was British. He was born in a, a textile milling town in the north of England near Manchester. And what I have figured out is that after going to Asia, possibly meeting the mother there, he finally settled in Montreal, worked as a clerk for a while, and then quit his job, apparently to support his family of, you know, 12 to 14 children by being an artist. But what I have discovered is he actively assisted Chinese in Montreal to move into the U.S. during the exclusion era. Some of these men had been caught outside the U.S. after actually having emigrated to the U.S. Legitimately, they, they had grounds to get back into the U.S., you know, continue their business in the U.S., etc. But many of these exclusion laws had, had caught them offside. Maybe they were in China visiting family or in, in Canada visiting uh, colleagues. And so he helped them cross the border by smuggling them in the bottom of a truck kind of covered with hay, etc. and driving south from uh, Montreal into New York State. So he got arrested for that. That was in 1896. And then he was arrested a second time in 19, I think it was 1914. So it's quite possible that between 1896 and 1914, he continued to be active in this role. It appears that some of the people he helped smuggle were actually newcomers to North America and you know probably shouldn't have been assisted but but in many ways I think Canadians um, of a sort of progressive bent viewed the laws that the US had set up as kind of like the fugitive slave law you know something explicitly racist that was excluding people, limiting their mobility, etc. So, so that's the father. What a fascinating character, Edward Eaton. And then the mother, very little was known about her, you know, between uh, the challenges of accessing a Chinese archive, you know, scholars who don't uh, read Chinese, and, and, and just the fact that she seem to have no family. These have represented challenges to biographers, but I stumbled on a book by a Protestant missionary 
that basically told her story. And it said she was a young girl, a talented dancer. She was uh, made uh, Mutsai, uh, a slave girl in the Chinese system of apprenticeship um, to a Chinese acrobat and his wife. And they toured the world in the 1850s. Uh, they came to San Francisco and they performed at the American Theater on Sansom Street. They, they crossed the Isthmus of Panama and then went up to New Orleans and traveled by canal boat and steamer and who knows what else all over the US. Then they went to England, toured Great Britain, Europe, France, Germany. And then just by chance, because she had connected with some Protestant missionaries when she was in Limehouse with her owner, uh, she was decoyed away, rescued. We don't exactly know what happened, but uh, her owner lost her. And then she was raised um, with the support of Protestant missionaries until she was an adult and uh, returned to China as a missionary. So they are fascinating. <laughs> Amazing story. So there's a Chinese woman who was a performer and enslaved to the troupe. Then this British man who marries her. Where, does, where do they get married before they ultimately after back and forth settle in, the, in North America? They, they seem to get married on a boat somewhere. Right. The record that we have is that in 1862, I think it is, or 60, 63, they get remarried um, in an official capacity in Shanghai. So I think maybe if you get married on board a ship, it doesn't it's kind of a makeshift legal yeah. document, but yeah, they connect and get married in Shanghai in 1863. So and then they have numerous children. Ultimately, after some back and forth between England, they settle in Montreal. And then one of the, you said about 12, 14 children, right? Two die in childhood. So, well, you know, the, the group, the numbers change every few years. <laughs> There's an addition and a subtraction. So from our perspective, that is a truly cosmopolitan kind of global family sort of before we even use these terms. And then Edith, so that's my second part of that question. She's a teenager and it sounds from how you describe her becoming Suisse and Far, she makes a decision to assume a role or to speak on behalf of a community that she didn't have to do that. Exactly. I think she begins to have some opportunities to meet new Chinese immigrants to Montreal in the early 1890s. So she's already got a little bit of a writerly career going. She's been helping uh, set type at the Montreal Star, you know, since she was 18 years old. She's been submitting humorous little anecdotes to American newspapers, and she's been publishing stories in the um, in some local Montreal papers and magazines. But she doesn't she hasn't oriented her work towards Chinese, towards China, diasporic communities or anything like that. But I think in the early 1890s, she meets some new immigrants, um, women who have come to join their husbands. And she visits them with her mother, who I guess has been invited by a local missionary to help out because as a translator mm -hmm. and, and clearly some of their stories captivate her so much that she begins to write journalism first. And then by, by 1896, when she's 31 years old, she's starting to write fiction about them. And you uncovered a lot of these other writings. The fiction is, as we said earlier, put her on a, on a particular map, which is kind of literary history. And these stories are um, 
considered sympathetic. And I think that word is used sometimes in the descriptions I've read because there's so much anti-Asian and anti-Chinese sentiment that is so commonplace that her stories almost look like an exception. They're not stereotypes. They're not just caricatures. Um, so she's, she's giving voice to these experiences and people. Um, when you first started teaching the story, and to be honest with you, my experience was just assigning uh, Mrs. Spring Fragrance in the Land of the Free to undergraduate students who said to me in 2020, this is last summer, that they had never been assigned a story written by an Asian American in either high school or college. And they went to very fine high schools in Los Angeles. And I said, no, that can't be accurate. You must have read, you know, Maxine on Kingston or some big, you know, sort of popular. And they said, no, we've never read a story by anybody from our community. Yeah. So I found that really remarkable. And can you talk a little bit about the stories that put it on the map and then what else you found? Because you found so many other things. I mean, everything is just incredible. What was there that hadn't been um, anthologized or sort of indexed in, a, in, a, in an easily retrievable way? Yeah, I think her most commonly uh, taught story is Mrs. Spring Fragrance and a sequel to Mrs. Spring Fragrance called The Inferior Wo Woman. Yeah. And they both feature a diasporic woman who's moved to Seattle and she's very curious about American culture and she she is regarded by her neighbors as the kind of old fashioned one who, um, you know, it's not clear whether Mrs. Spring Fragrance has bound feet or not, but certainly the stereotype of the Chinese woman at the time would have been that she's deferent to her husband, that she's not really a feminist, that she's housebound and and conservative in all kinds of ways. But Mrs. Spring Fragrance, even as she doesn't ruffle feathers, she doesn't kind of aggressively challenge these stereotypes. She's, she's very clever and she's very um, insistent that she correct the record. So, so these two stories are basically about her flipping <laughs> the stereotype so that she exposes American mothers who are meddling to arrange their children's marriages as way more <laughs> conservative in terms of romance and family politics, etc. So, so that's a really popular story. The other text that is often assigned is a memoir, a sort of autobiographical text called Leaves from the Mental Portfolio of a Eurasian. And in that, in that uh, nonfiction work, she reflects on stages of her life and, and probably what we would call today the microaggressions that one experiences as a mixed race person or, or a racialized person. So those are the most popular. I guess um, since, since those ones were anthologized, people have discovered, several scholars have discovered uh, other works by her. So Dominica Ferens found a whole bunch of journalism by her from um, uh, Jamaica when she worked as a journalist in Kingston, Jamaica in 1896 and seven. And Martha Cutter found a story that was set in Jamaica and June Howard has found some stories. So, so her, her oeuvre is, is expanding, but the one piece I love the most is actually a, a piece that a graduate student slipped into a dissertation without working on Suisun Far, but but this little nugget that I think her supervisor had found was really sweet. Turns out it's an 1896 uh, newspaper interview with her uh, by the New York recorder which was kind of a woman's newspaper and she's just arrived in new york city she's staying at a boarding house she wants to meet people in chinatown 
and her description, her, her love of the energy and excitement of Chinatown is really great. And her depiction of Chinatown, not as an exclusive enclave for Chinese, but rather as a space of rich, heterogeneous points of contact. There are many mixed race people living there, part Spanish, part African-American, part Asian. And she really revels in the rich pluralism of that space. And I think when students read that interview, which is a hundred and you know, 30 years old or whatever, they're really struck by her vision of the potential of the American body politic. So that's one of my favorite stories. It's, and all these stories, I'm, I was just struck how the, uh, the characters in our stories, they occupy several positions always. The, the Mrs. Spring Fragrance, as you said, she you introduced and you're thinking even by her name, she's possibly a traditional, Chinese American or Chinese born American here in Seattle, but she becomes a figure who mediates between these different people who helps out this young girl who actually challenges her husband in a very subtle way to rethink certain assumptions he has. And I think that is the strength that's far greater than just saying, here's a Chinese American writer, but here's someone who opens up um, what everybody does that everybody negotiates these different spheres and culture and there's a there's a letter that mrs spring fragrance write and in in the, in the story and my students were completely struck by some of the things because she attends a lecture where someone says well you know chinese should pay more for certain things because the benevolent american government holds their hand, its hand over them and protects them and my students said, like, what, what, who, who is she speaking on behalf of here? Right. When she goes to Chinatown in New York, as you just described in this journalist, in this kind of interview, who does she identify herself in, in any way in which, because that's what I think your book is so important to say, she's not just, or she's not a Chinese American writer or Chinese Canadian writer. She's doing certain things to open up this category. Yeah, I think this piece that she writes or this interview of her in 1896 is one of the first texts where she acknowledges this other name she has, Suisinfar, which um, I'm not pronouncing in any correct way in terms of the Cantonese. But, but that is sort of how she's referred to. I think someone in China said to me, okay, if you really want to pronounce this correctly for, for your Chinese audience, it's Shui Xinhua. <laughs> so, right. But if I said that to you, your listeners would be equally confused. But anyway, it's the first time she acknowledges in print that name. Mm -hmm. And it may be a family name, uh, it means Narcissus. She writes later in her work about how Narcissi grow. And she's really interested in how underneath they rely on dirt and mud and <laughs> things that, that we don't associate with beautiful aesthetic production. And yet, they are, in fact, beautiful flowers. And in a way, I read her reflections on her pseudonym um, and on aesthetics as um, a comment on what she sees as her role. There's something really dirty, foul, unpleasant about the racist culture and the exclusion or mistreatment of Chinese immigrants. And yet she can write fiction that is aesthetically accomplished, beautiful, and pointed, very sharp. I mean, if you've ever smelled one of those paper rose white narcissi, they're yeah. pretty intense. You can't 
you can't ignore them in the room because they are there. And she's quite similar. So she finds a way through beautiful, aesthetically pleasing fiction and other texts to convey a challenging message to American readers. And can, can you say a little bit about how you think she is read or received in this way. She's publishing stories, so she's selling stories to a range of publications, many of them you've actually found and discovered. And um, is, is she read by people? Um, I'm just trying to think because sort of there's this overlay of 130 years of now people sort of thinking about what is Chinese American history. As you said, it's not just in 1900 or 1896, there's this kind of foul sediment of racism. The Chinese exclusion policies go from 1880 till the 1960s in America. It's nearly a century of mm -hmm. legislative exclusion, which then leads to all sorts of social exclusion. But when she's publishing her stories, I'm trying to get a sense of what, there's this huge production of literary magazines and um, newspapers that publish short stories. How do you think people read her stories at that point? Is it a, a matter of curiosity or of entertainment or what's the status of short fiction? I'm really interested because of course now we live in a different world and you know, fiction doesn't have that kind of status for us probably right now. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there was an expansion of print culture that coincided with her career. So effectively, hundreds more newspapers and magazines were were created and each of them focused on a kind of niche audience maybe a children's magazine or a family magazine a men's magazine a women's magazine a huntsman rifle user you know all kind mm -hmm. of hobbyists etc so so all of these magazines had a hunger for content and all of these magazines wanted to grab content that that someone another magazine that they competed with wouldn't get. So some of her earliest uh, publishers were actually magazines that were were the railroad equivalent of what we think of today as an in-flight magazine. So well, if you're on an airplane, remember that when we yeah, used to travel. Yeah. <laughs> so you you pull the in-flight magazine out of the little pocket and you read, and it kind of transports you to places that the that the airlines would like you to be interested in visiting. Yeah, yeah. Well, similarly, the railroads, when they were trying to foster transcontinental travel and also emigration to some of the Western states, Washington State, California, Oregon, they really wanted to feature some content that maybe showed some of the more exotic or fascinating or unusual aspects of these locations. Mm -hmm. So a, a story that depicted San Francisco or Los Angeles Chinatown or Seattle's Chinatown uh, by Sui Sinfar would be very appealing. So she she kind of got her start because that kind of content would be appealing to, to non non-Chinese, non-Asian readers. Um, certainly she had some great connections with um, Chinese print cultural workers, writers and editors, etc. And I'm pretty confident that her her work or references to her appeared in some of these um, Chinese language uh, publications in the US. But but to answer your question about, you know, why I would or who, who would read her and why, even as early as 1900, some male student attending Dartmouth writes her a fan letter and really wants to have her autograph. And so that's years before she's really developed a national reputation or published a book. So, so very early, there's kind of uptake and popularity. And is this um, a way for her to earn a living? 
the the narrative that the biography has tended to advance is that she struggled, she was poor as a church mouse, no, you know, she couldn't earn a living by her writing. I think as more and more of these texts have been discovered, like I think my research has kind of tripled or quadrupled her oeuvre, we can see that there are definitely phases in her career where she is working full-time as a writer, as a journalist and, and as an author. She certainly takes time off from her stenography career in the 19-teens to prepare uh, the manuscript that becomes Mrs. Spring Fragrance. And as that's being published, She's at work on another book length project that unfortunately disappears. We don't quite know what that was and where it went. Mm. Um, but I, I think she earned an impressive living at many stages of her life and supported the extended family that continued to need support, particularly, you know, at times when when her dad was in jail, etc. Right. right. But, um, some of the pieces that you discover that I read in your book, Becoming Susan Farr, are very funny, the early ones. Um, they're also funny, but also very unsettling. There's, there's one about a couple, they have a little misunderstanding, and then they go out and it's kind of about a relationship. And then there's another one just about going in a horse car, which is as if you would go in a subway or in a taxi or an Uber today or something and seeing people with other people, um, I guess Uber share. <laughs> but mm -hmm. very, there's a lot of humor. And then there's one story that, as you know, I like a lot in The Land of the Free. I think she has an earlier journalistic piece called The Land of the Free, very brief, but there's a later piece in The Land of the Free about um, a young couple and the woman returns from China where she spends some time to attend, I think, to her parents and she returns with the baby and the customs officials at San Francisco port seize the baby from this American couple and take the baby away. Um, and it's a really heartbreaking story. And what I found amazing how it navigates um, identities across sort of the, the Americas and the, the customs officials basically apologize and say, well, we just have to do this. This is a law and they take the baby away and it nearly breaks up the marriage. So there's kind of humor and there's also something else that we would read in a certain way as political, but I actually think it's maybe not read as political at the moment. It's just a story that is universal. It's about a parent mm -hmm. having to give up a child. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that story got a lot of attention over the last few years because the American government has been separating children from their parents for whatever reasons. So that's, it's a very timely story. But as you say, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's full of pathos. I mean, people are struggling to be given the right to have a family, to enjoy their family, to be with their children, and then separated, not only separated, but when the child is reunited with the mother, possibly the most heartbreaking thing about that story, The Land of the Free, is that when the child is finally reunited with the mother, he doesn't speak Chinese isn't wearing his Chinese clothing. He regards her as a stranger. So the, the bond has been dramatically severed by the intervention of customs officials and other, you know, other perfunctories. And to stay with the story for a moment, I also thought it was incredible that the, the mother speaks English in a slightly different way from the officials. She's probably, she probably didn't grow up in the US the way I understand the story at least. So she's okay. using language to indicate um, 
sort of someone's identity position. And then there's this kind of insurmountable divide. There's this, this couple and they're against the American government. And then there's a um, kind of ruthless lawyer in between who just profits off the case and says, I'm yeah. going to intervene in Washington. I'm going to make money. And there's a very moving scene where the woman actually says, I'm going to give you all my jewelry to pay you. And she says, I don't take jewelry. And then someone says, well, actually, I'll take the jewelry. So there's, there's the American government. We can say they're kind of the bad guys. But there's a, someone else who profits off this whole system, a young, yes. ambitious lawyer. And the language in the story, I think that's really remarkable. And I, uh, I actually. I, I, I think the New York Times reviewed Miss Spring Fragrance and it's in a mixed review and says, but it's a new voice or a new tone in American literature. And I kind of think for my students, it was really important to say, this is how she's trying to capture how someone speaks at this moment under incredible duress. I mean, they're taking her baby away from her, her son away from her, but she's also having to make herself understood in a world where sort of mainstream English is, associated with power and authority. <laughs> and this family doesn't have a lot of power and authority at this moment. Yes, exactly. She's, um, she's almost a new kind of subjectivity in American literature. In, in some ways, I'm, I'm often reminded of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe in the sense that um, her her very popular novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, really urged white women <clears throat> to see across racial difference, to see the humanity of people they regarded as strangers, as aliens, as, as not people. So in this story, I think everyone can, can see the humanity of Lei Chu um, and, and identify with her desire to be reunited with her child. That, that scene you describe where the lawyer accepts all, their, all her jewels, not only are they, you know, little pieces of property that she's kind of throwing into the mix, they all have incredible sentimental value there about family, about parents, about gifts from her husband, about marriage. Um, they're jade bracelets that she may have had from childhood. So, so what she is throwing into the mix and sacrificing in order to get her child back is basically everything she has, everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a steep price and it's not one that the lawyer calculates mm -hmm. in the same way. He's just kind of grabbing what he thinks he can, I don't know, sell at a pawn shop or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it is a heartbreaking story. But it's a great point you're making, it's kind of, um something like a new subjectivity and the story starts um, when they're, they're coming into San Francisco Harbor and she says to her little son who's a baby, see little one, the hills in the morning sun, this is thy home for years to come, which is almost like a poem. It's like arriving in America, having to give up and sacrifice anything you own, anything that ties you back to your family, to your parents, to your marriage, the price to pay. But at the end of the story, the little son has in a strange way almost become Americanized and doesn't even re respond to his mother. So yeah. in the space yes. of this little tiny short story, I think you get one of the great dilemmas of America is how do you become American? Who counts as American? Why do some people have to sacrifice so much to be American supposedly and still not be recognized and break up? As you said, they sever the bonds in their own family. So, so I think this is really, um, in many of her stories, there's so much going on in a space of a few pages that can then be unpacked. And, we, and as you said, the, the story has been read now, of course, in, in, you know, in, in light of um, the administration's policy of separating children from families. And as we know, there's still hundreds and hundreds of children who they cannot locate. So mm -hmm. who has just been taken from their families. 
Um, can you can we shift to another question, which is really it's also going to be my invitation for a whole second hour on the podcast. Uh, she has a sister uh, who's also a writer. And I, I wanted to ask before we just one sentence about the sister, when I said, is she making money at this point? She's selling stories and you're saying she's opening up a part of America to American readers who have downtime when they're traveling. What about the sort of whole dimension of Orientalism? That's kind of the, the flip side of, or the same side of the pervasive anti-Asian racism that she uses this name. Her sister will also assume a different name um, how do you think they are received and read from that from that side? You're right that in fin de siècle culture in the West, there was a deep interest in Asia. It's it's exoticism, I guess. So we have um, Madame Butterfly, and we have. Um, Asian textiles and ceramics and um, lots of people furnishing their homes with chinoiserie. So all, all kinds of levels of interest in both Chinese and Japanese culture. I think politically, the Japanese were seen as sort of a stronger, more peer nation to the US, a kind of imperial nation of um, intense sophistication. The level of immigration to the US by Japanese was, was slight compared to the level of immigration by Chinese. And yet the Chinese who emigrated were largely from the peasant class initially when they were helping build the railroad. And so, so there are almost two classes of, of Asian in the American imagination. So I think the Orientalism tends to be more fascinated by Japan because it sees Japan as um, a, a more elite and aesthetically sophisticated culture. And then, it's interesting that this is sort of as if there's kind of um, in many of these relations, there's a kind of a double sort of the good and the bad. There's a kind of the, the yellow peril, the kind of continual threat of, from Asia. And then there's a kind of elevation or celebration of through Madame Butterfly, which was published right before the turn of the century, the kind of fetishization of the other, which probably happens in many, in, in some regards for, uh, uh, and can you say just uh, tell our listeners one thing about this sister who also becomes a writer in her own right and quite successful as well. And I, I, I know we, we talked before whether we could talk about the two sisters. And I said, no, I really want to talk about Sumi Sin Far for one whole hour and then we can talk about her sister for another hour. Okay, well, uh, the, the woman we've been talking about, Edith Eaton, was born in 1865. 10 years later, her sister Winifred is born. So there's, there's a significant gap in age between them. Mm -hmm. But her sister follows along the same path. Uh, their, their, their paths overlap in really interesting ways. So in the 1890s, when Edith Eaton, Sui Sinfar, is publishing in Montreal magazines and newspapers, Winifred Eaton is also publishing. She has a story accepted by a Montreal magazine in 1896. She's a little bit more of a hustler than her sister, so she uh, volunteers to go to Jamaica for a journalism job in 1896. She doesn't stay very long. She stays for about five months, but very shortly after returning to North America from Jamaica, she assumes the pseudonym uh, Anato Watana, which is kind of Japanese, but sort of a faux, we could call it a faux Japanese name. She assumes this name as the pen name of another identity she assumes. So she pretends to be a Japanese noblewoman named Kitashima Takahashi, 
which she spells very badly by by any you know Japanese standard she she assumes this identity and then says that that as Kitashima Takahashi she is assuming the pen name Anoto Watana and she is going to write stories about Japanese girls Japanese young women etc and that's the start, you know, basically 1896, she publishes a story by Anato Watana. And from 1896 until, you know, 1922, she continues to publish as Anato Watana, even as this complete racial masquerade is exposed in you know, 1903, 1904. She doesn't care. It's a, it's a good hook. Right. Um, she calls it a cheap device later. She acknowledges it's a cheap device. But for a while, she profits unbelievably. So where, where Edith Eaton, her sister, probably sort of made a living from her writing, you know, had a pretty good um, output, etc. Winifred, becomes a blockbuster success. Her works, her novels are translated into 20 languages. You know, they're made into films, they're made into plays. She is a real success story under the brand Anato Watama. I think it's um, really worth pointing out that she's profiting of a kind of craze for sort of, as we say, maybe pseudo Asian product in a way content she becomes actually a major consultant for big studios she goes to Hollywood she's really an, a really big success story also not quite that common for a woman at that point to become a sort of to become that recognized and established but I think it opens another interesting aspect that these identities that we retrospectively bestow on them that Asian American would not even probably have been entirely comprehensible to them, that Canadian, Asian Canadian, that these categories, of course, shift over time. And I would, I would like to sort of ask you, because as you know, I'm interested in these kinds of stories that inaugurate a certain tradition, there's always complications, like um, this is probably the first novel published by an Asian American. Sui Sin Far is usually considered to be the first short stories published by an Canadian, Asian or Asian American writer. But did it shift your understanding of literary history itself, of the canon you were taught? We started out by saying how you were looking for new texts to teach when you were in graduate school um, and probably still today. How do you think it changed your understanding? And I'm really just asking because this completely did two things. It changed my understanding of American literary history. And it made me realize that I was told deliberately a very different history where these people did not figure in at all. It just what was handed down. So I'm kind of just interested in how it shifts your perception of the what we call the canon or the history of American writing. Yeah, thanks. That that is the question that drives my research. Um, I think I, I've spent most of my career as a recovery scholar, so trying to recover the works of American women writers. I edit the section of the legacy journal that's addressing the recovery of uh, texts that um, people haven't had access to, whether they've been published and forgotten or sort of are gathering dust in the archive. And I think my, my overall sense from all the research I've done recovering American women writers is that the literary history we've been taught is deeply, deeply wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not even, uh-oh, it left a few people out. Mm. It's more uh, a, a strong, active, deliberate misrepresentation of what has been true. So, so even, when, even when we think about somebody like Winifred Eaton, you mentioned that she 
goes to Hollywood as a consultant. She actually headed the script department of Universal Studios for many years. Mm-hmm. During the period that she did that, um, as recent film scholars, film history scholars are discovering, women were actually really central in Hollywood. Okay. They were fantastic dialogue writers. Okay. They were the authors of popular novels that and plays that could be easily converted into movies. And uh, some, some book that my grad student told me about said that it, it, it looked at a staff directory, I forget which studio, but one of the movie studios from early on and 80% of the names were women. Now we, we might think, okay, they're probably all the secretaries, you know, like <laughs> 10, 10 men getting great salaries and then sort of, you know, uh, scores of women doing all the work, but they seem to be directors, actors, uh, stenographers, screenwriters, um, sort of, anyway, if that, that is sort of a staggering new discovery yeah. in the Hollywood world. And I think what I have discovered, I'm not a film scholar, but in the adjacent world that I'm looking at, I see that uh, early 20th century fiction was dominated by women writers. Um, uh, the type of poetic that was uh, popular in the 1900s, 19-teens, 1920s, again, was dominated by women writers. So, and then we see these two sisters as fairly popular players in the sort of ethnic American literature. <coughs> so I think it's pretty clear to say uh, it's clear to see that the narrative that we've all been taught that is starting to change because of anthologies like yours has excluded a lot of people. But Mary, I really appreciate this because you actually just corrected, and it's really important, you corrected my own sense of it was unusual for Onoto Watana or you know, to actually work in Hollywood. You're saying, no, not at all. Not at all, but then I'm thinking, so how did I come up with this um, wrong idea? And why did I sort of assume, oh, women, as you said, were probably just in supporting roles. And you said, no, they were directors, they were screenwriters, they were script editors, they were ideas people. Um, the other thing you just said, which is interesting in American fiction at this time is there's a lot of women writing. And one of the books that you wrote earlier, um, which I also really find a remarkable book is about sentimentality. It's called Sentimental Men, Masculinity and the Politics of Affect in, in American Culture, I think, where you talked about how there has been a way to dismiss the sentimental or to assign it to the status oh, that's, that's on the side of the feminine and therefore we don't take it seriously. And I'm always really interested in actually the sentimental or the melodramatic, it can be a very powerful way to say things that shouldn't be said. And a lot of the fiction from this time we know has this, this dimension to say something that had not been accepted or is not being, not being said. Um, your recovery effort is, part of it is also to bring this to the public. So you, I think you are the, the um, I don't know what to call it, the host or the creator of Winifred Eaton Archive, correct? Is that right? And yeah, that's the director of the website. The director, thank you. And, and that is really essential for people to find these texts, to find information. Um, because I believe that one of the really important places where these works need to be read are high school and college classrooms. So and access the, is so important, right? We need to make these texts available to people. And that's what you've done in a way so people can go on the website, find information, find what's in public domain and assign these texts. Um, and when you think now what's your, um, your role as a kind of uh, custodian of this legacy, I did a, a podcast on Kate Chopin the other day, 
what would Sui Sinfar think today that she has been in a certain way, um, I guess the word is recovered or rediscovered by scholars, some of them you named today and by you, what would, how, would, how do you think she would think about the fact that um, people are discussing her as having this role in American letters? I, I think the focus on sentimentality is really interesting and relevant to Sui Sinfar. She did not deride it as a method for political intervention. However, the reason we have inherited a sort of negative stance towards uh, sentimentality is because some male writers in the early 20th century actively maligned the sentimental. So I'm thinking here of somebody like Ezra Pound, sentimental slither, flowery language, you know, these are things he rejects in many of his uh, kind of manifesto-like writing. But the fact remains that we're humans, we have emotions, we are empathetic creatures, and part of the reason we read literature and we enjoy it is because we identify with, um, with the people we read about. So I think that was a very central project for Edith Eaton, Susan Farr, and I think she would be delighted to see that her, her broader career is now being acknowledged. I mean, she was one of the unfortunate people who, whose career was interrupted, uh, you know, sort of cut off too early by a premature death. She, she lived alone. She didn't have children to kind of uh, retain her legacy or, or a partner to retain her legacy. And she died in 1914, which is a weird moment in literary history where a lot of things got lost because we have World War One. we have a sudden shift to privilege modernism, and it's not the category that she fits in exactly. Mm -hmm. But I, I think she would be delighted to mm -hmm. know that uh, people are revisiting her works and getting a fuller picture of the range of ways in which she intervened in Yellow Peril Discourse, Ethnic American Literature, et cetera. Yeah, no, we, we <laughs> I tend to think that actually these writers somehow, I hope they are aware of this. Um, if we can close with your project, you, as we said, you're writing um, a family history, Intimate Empire of the, the Eaton family, and then the website that you're directing, which makes available um, to people uh, a lot of these really discoveries. Yeah, the Winifred Eaton archive has uh, lots of texts, lots of photos from the family. Um, the, the part of this resource that I'm most proud of is actually the biographical timeline because the availability of digitized sources the, the crowdsourcing, the generosity of Eaton scholars across the world has allowed us to tweak, revise, correct some errors that um, ha had circulated prior. Um, and so that biography is growing and the, the timeline is growing and it offers me some of the coordinates um, from which to write this intimate empire uh, book, which is going to be very much focused on family relationships, mm -hmm. but also the broader cultural relationships that, that the family are kind of embedded in as mixed race, immigrant, transnational cultural producers. Right. No, I really want to thank you. It is such an incredible resource. And um, I, for me, it was really just eye-opening to find this and to direct my students to it. And um, Mary, I want to thank you for 
for being a guest today. Uh, we, <laughs> there's a lot more we could touch upon, but I really want to um, just tell our listeners it's really a, it's a, it's a, a great start to read um, some of Sui Sinfar's short stories and then to consult um, uh, Dr. Mary Chapman's book, Becoming Sui Sinfar, Early Fiction, Journalism and Travel Writing by Edith Mott Eaton. And um, again, to repeat this, you are a professor of English at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. We are conducting this, of course, over Zoom during the pandemic. Um, but I really want to thank you um, and all the other scholars you acknowledge, but whose work you presented to make available something that really, as I said before, I was really just not aware of. And I went to pretty decent schools, but somehow this had never come across my <laughs> curriculum. So I'm really, I'm really happy to discover it now with you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and giving me a chance to share my research with your listeners. Uh, I welcome their emails, their suggestions, their questions. I really regard my research as uh, crowdsourced, crowd-shared, and I look forward to uh, hearing from your listeners. Think about it. Deep Conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books.